Welcome to the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. This is the first snippet of our amazing and extensive conversation with Agustin McKinley from Cantox. Agustin is a senior financial writer at Cantox, a former lecturer and a fellow podcaster. He is a fount of knowledge, particularly when it comes to currency management, foreign exchange risk management, FX trading, and so on. Hussam and I simply couldn't stop asking him questions, and we can feel how passionate Agustin is when we listen to him. In the episode of today, expect to learn what is currency management, what are the instruments used in currency management, what is a hedging strategy and a hedging budget for companies, how industries impact companies' needs in terms of currency management, what are and who are the main actors when it comes to that endeavor, and much, much more. If you like the episode, the best thing you can do is to share it, submit a review on your favorite podcast app, and subscribe to the podcast. This would mean the world to Usam and I, and would help the podcast a lot. With all that being said, please welcome Agustin McKinley. Hey, Agustin. Thanks a lot for joining the podcast. Um, can we maybe begin with you introducing yourself and explain us what you do? Well, hey there. It's great to be here. My name is Agustin McKinley. I'm the senior financial writer at Cantox and the host of CurrencyCast. Uh, as both a financial writer and a creator of a podcast, well, I, my, my work involves writing reports and different pieces of, of research. And well, I'm proud to say that uh, we have uh, here uh, treasurers guided through the process of currency management in all of the different aspects. And it's really exciting to be here today to, to talk about all of this. Very excited as well. And I already heard quite some terms that I can't wait to break down. Um, but maybe before diving into this, can you explain us what Cantox does? Right. Look, Cantox is creating a new software category. We call it currency management automation. We're going to discuss, of course, all of these topics, but it involves in providing the treasuries with mostly automated tools, software tools to guide them through the entire process of currency management. And we can break down that process in what we call three phases, a retrace phase. We're going to, of course, uh, discuss that where it starts with using a foreign exchange rate to set the price of the goods that you sell. If, for example, you can sell them in overseas markets, obviously that is going to involve a currency rate, but you can sell it in domestic markets if there are uh, important components that also is going to involve a currency rate. Then there's the process of the trade phase itself that involves executing what is uh, in our case, forward our currency transactions, and of course we're going to discuss them in more detail, all the way to the low post-trade phase that involves payments and, and collections in foreign currencies. Now, we'd like to emphasize that this is a, an end-to-end -end approach, and beyond all the technicalities, Hussam uh, and Guillaume, what we aim here is to provide answers for concrete business problems, right? And so, for example, it's interesting that the Chinese have, when they uh, express risk, they use two characters, danger and opportunity, right? And yes, of course, there are some aspects of, of danger in currency management. We want to emphasize the aspect of opportunities, right? We want to provide treasure with tools to become more strategic to take advantage of the opportunities that, that currencies bring. And we call that embracing currencies very optimistically. Love the approach. So I think you also guys have a podcast, right? Um, I definitely want to bring down everything, quite some actuality and news to cover as well. But uh, beginning with the Currency Cast podcast, can you walk us through what you do there and what it is about? That's right. We started the Currency Cast uh, podcast Back in 2022, as a way to 
rate awareness about that category that we call currency management automation. And well, it, it involves a, a masterclass that I'm uh, grateful uh, to them for calling it that way. So uh, usually we present in a relatively short episode one or, or one element of all of that so set of complex steps that are included in, in currency management. And so that's, uh, that's what we do in currency cast and, and we are very excited to continue with, with it, uh, for the foreseeable future. Very cool. Very cool. Augustine, thank you so much for coming on. So let's, let's get into the nitty gritty, Augustine. So you mentioned a few times currency management. Could you define currency management? as seen by Cantogs? Right, yes, excellent question. Well, look, currency management is the process of, of using foreign currencies in commercial and also financial operations. Commercial operations, as I just mentioned, right? If you're going to, to sell in overseas markets, in Canadian dollars, in Thai baht, in Brazilian reais, then exchange rates and currencies are going to be involved. Or if you're selling domestic markets, but say you're selling British pounds, furniture that you imported from China, it's going to involve the Chinese currency, British pound. The, the entire process starts with pricing, but as I said, there is also the risk management, a part of, of all this. It's not the only, it's the only, not the only one, right? People tend to put the, uh, uh, to give more importance to that risk management, which is, of course, very important, but it's not the only one. There's going to be also the process of payments and collections in in foreign currencies, and all of that uh, must be included in what we call currency management. Do you define those differently between risk management and currency management, Augustine? Well, yes. As I said, pricing with an FX rate is a key component in currency market in currency management. We've got to. We'll see some some examples, I think, uh, a little bit later on. And the the process of risk management also is usually understood as as executing hedges. And of course, we need to define what that means. But at Cantos, we have a maybe a, a, a broader view of, of all that process. So, for example, there are all ways to manage risk, the underlying risk in currencies without executing hedges and all of that is got to require a slightly maybe different approach that that the one that is emphasized right mostly executing those those uh, currency hedges and so it involves more uh, more processes more possibilities in fact it's a world of opportunity that opens up for treasures again to Act more as strategic players within the company, and allowing the the firm to yes to take advantage of those those currencies to maybe enhance the firm's competitive position, and why not securing budgeted profit margins, and even perhaps making a contribution towards well enhancing the value of the firm. Why not? Now, very clear. I'm looking forward to digging into that. I heard some words that uh, Guillaume and I and our listeners love, like hedging. This is a it's a hot topic for us on the Corporate Treasury 101 podcast. So looking forward to touching that again. But before we get into that, could you give us some like examples of situations of where companies or corporates um, would use currency management exactly? Well, yes. Um, so say that, it, that we're dealing with a, a US-based company that, uh, that has an order to, to sell in, say, 100,000 or euros worth of goods, but the key thing is that the, the settlement of that commercial transaction, right? Because it's a commercial transaction, is going to be say in three months' time. But what's going to happen between the moment the transaction is agreed and the moment it's got to be settled, that it's settled in cash, right? There's going to be a shift in the exchange rate, as we know, exchange rates change second by second, right? And so that is going to involve uh, a number of processes and, of course, not to depend on the type of, of companies, the type of 
pricing characteristics, uh, some face dynamic prices that change over time. Some companies, on the other hand, would like to keep stable prices for, say, an entire campaign or budget period, and others still decide to keep steady prices for as long as possible. So going to create different type of situations that we're going to re require uh, different types of currency management. I wanted to dig into the purposes of currency management. That it's, it's basically to enable international trade, right? As long as you have to deal with other territories, countries that have different currencies, not only will you need to exchange your own currency against or with the other one, but also hedge yourself against certain aspect of currency risk management, as you mentioned earlier. Pretty clear. Um, what are the instruments typically that we find in currency management and then currency risk management, Mark? Right. Well, yeah, um, I would add to what you just said that, yes, we are used to uh, think of currency management in terms of commercial uh, transactions, right? Mostly buying and selling goods and services, and that's perfectly uh, so right to emphasize that. But there could be a, a say, a financial type of exposure to currency risk, which is, so for example, a company makes a loan to subsidiary in a foreign currency. And there's not a commercial type of transaction, but it's going to, to involve currency risk as well. So there's commercial type of exposure and perhaps a more financial type of exposure. By the way, it's very exciting that right now we're starting to, to, um, to, uh, get clients from the fintech space, fintech companies that fund themselves in one currency and issue loans in another currency, which also creates tremendous uh, so opportunities for them and for us to help them manage those currencies and that currency risk. Now, with regards to the tools that, that are used in currency management, well, I think most important ones involve the spot market operations, forward markets operations, but also options and why not uh, futures. Would you like to, to, to discuss those? Absolutely. Please, okay. let's dig into this. So what are the difference between uh, all of those instruments? How do you use them? And in which situations exactly? That's right. Look, a spot a transaction, as the name implies, is a transaction that is, uh, so for example, if I got to buy one currency uh, and paying in another one, that takes place, the settlement and the delivery take place on the spot, right? That's why it's called a spot market transaction. Now, it's not exactly on the spot. Why? Because usually it takes about two working days to be, uh, to be settled, but mostly it's a spot market transaction. Yeah. Delivery and payment take, take place almost immediately. In fact, for euro against the dollar, which is the most widely traded currency pair, it, it, it takes only one working day to be settled and delivered. There are, of course, other types of uh, foreign exchange transactions that uh, help you manage currency risk and currencies in general. And the most widely used uh, here uh, for us and in the world is so-called forward market uh, foreign exchange uh, transaction. And they also involve a currency that is going to be sold against another one or bought against another one. But the key difference is that settlement and payment do not take place on the spot. They got to take place at a date in the future, right? That is, that is agreed upon by both our participants. And that creates at least two important differences with a spot transaction. The moment, of course, time is involved, right? You, uh, you may agree to, to have delivery and payments take place two weeks time, in a month's time, in six months, in one year. But the minute time is involved, interest rates are also involved. And that, uh, that is going to add some complexity to, uh, to the issue. Also, you need to take the your credit worthiness into consideration, right? An American president said, "Trust but verify," right? In order for you to 
to be able to execute such a forward uh, transaction, you need to make a good faith deposit, right? Call it a collateral amount that needs or cash that needs to be set aside in order to to avoid our bad surprises. Makes a lot of sense. I like that the the finance people have quite an understandable jargon, right? Spots is because it happened on the spots. Forward, you look forward at the transaction. Makes a lot of sense. You mentioned the, a term that I would like to break down a bit, um, like, which is currency pair. What's, I think it's quite a simple one, but can you break it down for us, please? That's right. The, I mentioned, I think, the most widely used currency pair is the euro and the dollar. Right? Mm-hmm. If it's expressed in, uh, you, you, see, you will see it written as EUR, USD. What does that mean? It means... Yeah. The amount of US dollars or one euro, that's a currency pair. Could be expressed uh, the other way around, right? Of course, uh, the amount of euros for one US dollar. It's just a convention. It's exactly the same, but these are the, the, the conventions and the most widely uh, used currency pairs involve, of course, as I said, the euro and the dollar, but also the, the euro against the British pound, the uh, dollar against the Japanese yen, and and more and more, of course, as we, we're, we're reading the news, we're seeing what's going on with China. Little by little, the Chinese currency is gaining momentum, meaning that currency pairs involving the Chinese currencies are also going to be more widely used going forward. Okay, so currency pair just simply refers to two different currencies at which you would look for a spot rate, a forward rate, or you just look at what is the exchange rate between those two in the time. That's absolutely the case, yes. Makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess, and can you, that's super clear, that we have a term that we hear sometimes, which is trading currencies uh, when it comes to currency management. Can you explain us what that means exactly? Well, yes. Trading currencies, it involves, of course, buying and selling one currency against another. And maybe uh, an example will will help us see that. So let's say that um, you're a Norwegian company and you wish to buy, uh, for example, 10 million US dollars. Now, you're going to go to a foreign exchange dealer that is going to show you two, not one, but two currency rates, two uh, it's got to show, so for example, 8.55 Norwegian a crown per dollar and 8.55 30 Norwegian uh, crowns for one dollar. So what's going to happen here is that at any time, there's going to be people interested in buying dollars and in selling dollars. But here, if you're going to buy dollars uh, in this case, you've got to pay 8.5530 Norwegian crown. And if you another company wants to sell those 10 million dollars, it's got to get paid 8.55. The difference is, of course, those are in the 10 million dollar amount, it, it, it equals 30,000 Norwegian crown. That's how dealers make money. That's how currency trading takes place. Could be on a spot basis or on a forward basis. Now, we are at Cantos a little bit keen to not to overemphasize the term trading. Of course, it is used, right? And we do it all the time, but it has maybe a, a speculative connotation, right? Of retail traders buying and selling. And we like to think of Currency management as the opposite of speculation, right? Yes, of course, it's, it is going to involve uh, um, that trade, but, but which we're keen not to overemphasize that aspect. It's just one in the chain of events that, or, or the, the workflow right, that starts from, from pricing and, and then to payments. Super clear, Augustine. Thank you so much. Um, there's a couple more. Uh, financial instruments that we had covered before in Corporate Treasury 101. And so we, we talked about spots and forwards, but we also have mentioned things like swaps and options. 
Are those also used in currency management? And if so, how? Yes, absolutely. Because they're, they're used, uh, swaps and options are widely used. Another one, just let's briefly uh, break them uh, down all one by one. So a swap transaction is a transaction in which you buy and sell the same amount of a currency against another, but with different value dates. What's a value date is the moment in time that a transaction is going to be settled. We saw that in spot market transactions, that is on the spot forward a transaction that takes place at a, at a date in the future. So swaps are very useful. So for example, if you have a forward transaction in place, say to buy a million euros against a million dollars against euro. But you realize that you need in two days, say a hundred thousand dollars. Well, what you could do is here execute a swap transaction whereby there is what is called a near leg in which you buy the hundred thousand dollars that you need for settlement in two days. And at the same time, you sell those hundred thousand dollars with the value date of the original position. And look at what, what you achieve. You're going to adjust your forward transaction right to the needs of the commercial hedging operation. And at the same time, you're going to have the cash at your disposal that you're going to need in, in, in two days time. Very, very useful type of transaction here, of course. There's, good, there's going to be a foreign exchange gain and loss depending on the change yesterday. But still, it's a very, very useful type of operations. And, um, and we do that all the time. Options, on the other hand, it's, a, it's an altogether different animal, right? Yeah. When, um, when you have the option to buy one currency against another, well, as the name indicates, right, you, you can... Uh, you can you have the option to decide whether to go ahead or not with that transaction. And it's going to depend on obviously on the exchange rate on the day of the settlement. Is it too good to be true? Well, yes, in a sense it is. So that's why option buyers need to pay uh, what is called a premium to option So it's a little bit like in a, a regular insurance policy. You have uh, the right to to make a choice, but against that choice, you needed to uh, come up with with a premium, a payment, right? Immediately uh, done. So maybe there's an issue here with options that we don't really we don't do at uh, at Captof. We don't work with options, and it's the pricing of that premium, right? Of that right to decide whether or not to buy or sell. Well, it, it, it can be the result of complex mathematical calculations that sometimes, sometimes in situations where um, there is more complexities involved, maybe it's not as transparent as forward uh, our contracts are. So that's why we tend, well, well we don't use them uh, at Capitals. We are, we like to say uh, that, well, we are, we think forward, right? We we use forwards uh, mostly, and of course, and, and swap transaction. So, is a, a swap is like if you had a forward already in place, but for some reason you need it earlier. So it's kind of like an emergency options contract. If you knew you needed it before, perhaps, or you had a higher risk of needing it before, you might have taken an option and paid for the premium. But a swap. Would a swap then be more expensive than just getting an options every time? Or no, no. Well, why would you pick yeah. one over the other? Well, you're absolutely absolutely right to say that that the the swap allows you to to adjust your position and it's so useful in that case. Now we call that to draw on a forward, right? To yeah. use the the cash that you need. Why is it because uh, I'm so useful? It's because what you see on te in textbooks is. And of course, the, the settlement date of a commercial transaction 
by miracle, exactly matches the settlement date of your corresponding forward transaction. Maybe we'll, we'll discuss that in more detail. Uh, but in real life, it's not the case, right? This, these adjustments need to be, to be executed. It's not always the case that the settlement of your commercial transaction exactly matches the value date of your forward transaction. Now, the reason why we prefer swaps and, and forwards is most, mostly because of transparency. There is no, uh, the, the, the price is completely transparent. You can see that on Bloomberg, on Thomson Reuters, the information is widely available, whereas options are more of a uh, could be right, depending on their complexity, uh, involve a little bit less uh, less transparency than than we would like at least for our clients. Very, very, very clear. And um, there's one word you haven't used yet, Augustine, that comes up a lot in treasury, which is risk appetite. And uh, my my journey into learning about treasury, uh, Guillaume has taught me a lot that uh, that treasurers uh, are always thinking about risk. So. How does that play into all of this? Right. Look, it's, it's of course, a, a fantastic uh, point there. Risk appetite is, well, is the reflection of a treasurer's view on, on, the, uh, on the underlying risk in, in, in currency management. We tend, as I think I, I, I well, yes, I mentioned uh, a couple of minutes before, to Avoid any type of speculation. That's really, really one key message that we always uh, so share with treasurers, CFOs, if needed with CEOs, board of management, uh, board of directors. No, no speculation is, in our view, the best. So, the best way to uh, to manage currencies, and that is going to involve, of course. The, as I think you are hinting at that, right? Your own views, markets, well, where are they headed to? Is the exchange rate going to, uh, to go up or down? But that is going also to involve perhaps your own biases, right? And there's lots of those psychological biases that the treasurers have, that you have, that I have. And one way to deal with those, those biases, right, is with with automated tools that that is are going to allow you to exclude as much as possible any possibility of of engaging in speculation right that's, and that's why we we use that term and that concept of automation to, to deal with that that potential risk I guess you know, we, we really like to go down the rabbit hole. And so you mentioned two things here, the, the commercial transactions that may happen at a, at a different moment that it was foreseen and the risk appetite. From what I understand of the, the different instruments you describe, would you rather uh, use like not flexible instruments and probably therefore a bit cheaper for payments on, over which you have total control and more flexible instruments for collections Making back to those swaps because those collections can arrive at a different time than it was initially planned, right? So, is there such a thing in terms of strategy? And we're going to come to it, but hedging strategies or those that have nothing to do with it? Well, hedging strategies is a big one. We tend to to use the term hedging programs at CanTalks, but yes, yeah, yeah. Those hedging programs are going to go, as I said, uh, and, and so are going to include the all the phases, and the phases include payments and, and collections as well. But note, uh, Guillaume, that forwards and swaps, so swaps could involve spot and forward transactions, they could involve two forward transactions. And um, so they're, in our mind, is roughly the, the same instrument uh, that, that we're talking about, only with different value days. So it's the one that we prefer. It's the one that we uh, tell companies to use. It's the most widely used of all by far, by the way, in, in terms of, of currency management. So we don't see there 
enormous differences in payments and collections. We all always use spot payments, forwards, and of course, those uh, swap transactions. Very clear, Augustine. Thank you so much. Can you take us further then into, as I mentioned at the start, our favorite topic, which is hedging and these hedging programs. So when we talked about hedging on Corporate Treasury 101, when Kim first explained it to me, talked about currency hedge, FX hedging and interest rate hedging. So focusing on the currency uh, or the FX hedging specifically, what are those hedging programs? And can you give us like examples from the real world? That's right. Well, look, let, let's explain, if you will, a uh, 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 hedge here relatively in, sim- in relatively simple terms. A hedge is, to go back to that example of a US-based company that has a, um, so a real uh, um on a sale in of a hundred thousand uh, euros, but the settlement has got to take place in three months' time. What you do is to hedge that transaction. That is to protect against the risk in that transaction, right? Transactional FX risk. But at the same moment, same date that you uh, that that operation was closed or was agreed upon, what you got to do is you got to sell the same amount of euros in the forward markets. With what validate? With a validate that, if possible, matches the date of the settlement of the commercial transaction. And look at the magic that is going to operate here. What happens on the on the date of the settlement of the two transactions? Because there's a commercial one, there's a financial one that you're going to do with, with a bank, right? You're going to get paid your 100,000 euros on the commercial transaction, and you're going to wire that amount to the bank, right? Against that amount, the bank is going to deliver your the value of uh, the corresponding value in US dollars. Note that that value was agreed upon as the transaction was also agreed upon. So there is no transactional currency risk other than the impact of interest rate differentials that we may discuss on a little bit later on. But also note that that allows us to define a hedge with more precision. The hedge is, in fact, it is the creation of a, or or the, taking a financial position in a so-called derivative instrument, in this case, a forward currency contract, whose value is going to shift in exactly the opposite direction as the value of the commercial operation. So, for example, in this case, if at settlement, the exchange rate between the euro and the dollar goes down, right? There, uh, from a commercial point of view, you've got to get a what is called a, an FX loss, right? The commercial transaction, when translated back into dollars, is going to uh, uh, be of a lower value. But what happens when the value of your financial transaction there is got to go up in value because you sold it at a higher price? So is an offsetting impact that defines the precision of a hedge. Now, there are, of course, different people call them strategies, or rather use the, the term programs. And mostly what they involve are well, different types of programs according to the pricing characteristics of your business. Not, it's not the same if you're facing what we call dynamic prices or prices that are updated all the time, like in the travel or in the travel space, right? OTAs, online travel agencies are going to face so prices that are second by second and they change all the time or a situation in which you wish to keep, say, a steady price, a fixed price on a catalog for one year, say, or one budget period, or one campaign period, right? Could be uh, less or more than one year. And you have the ability to want to reset your prices at the onset of a new campaign. Still, another possibility is those firms that perhaps are competitive pressures need to keep their prices steady for more than uh, one or two campaigns. In fact, for as long as possible. And it's got to call for 
different hedging programs. And that's where things get, of course, very, very exciting. Can you, in terms of stealing of hedging strategies, is there such a thing as hedging only a proportion of your commercial transaction? And by this, I mean, so the example you mentioned with the 100,000 USDs, could you hedge or like contract with the bank forward only for 50K, for instance, because of this pricing incentive that you don't want to pay too much for the cost of hedging, but you also want to have a little bit of certainty? Is there such a thing or that, that doesn't exist? Well, Guillaume, this you just described the process of protecting a budget rate, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's what happens in, in budget. So maybe budget edging is not the correct expression, but when you want to protect the, the entire budget for one year, you're going to do exactly as you're, you're implying. You're not likely, or at least we don't advise companies to take right at the start of the budget period a hedge, right, for the entire budgeted forecasted amount. Why? Because it's going to create forecasting risk right here. What if COVID hits you in the midst of the of the budget period, right? You will end up in this case being what is called overhead. You you will have a large financial transaction, but your the size or the value of your commercial transaction might be in this case on lower due to COVID or whatever, the economic crisis, etc. And that's exactly what, what we tell companies to do as they are going to, uh, to undertake a program to hedge their budgeted exposure. Now, very important that, um, because here, this is a fantastic example, the effects very much for citing it because it, it leads to the difference that we see in currency risk management and hedging. Let me let me uh, explain this. So say that as just as you imply, you don't want to hedge the whole of the expected or, or forecasted budgeted exposure. But say maybe twenty percent of it or forty percent right at the start. That's a, a prudent way to uh, to deal with things, and it's got to. Uh, to reflect your degree of forecasting accuracy, right? But you don't want either, neither, so either to have the rest of the exposure completely left a possible fluctuations in currency. Well, what is that we advise companies to do then? And we execute so automated hedging programs. Well, then is to set for the remaining part of the budgeted exposure, what is called conditional effects orders. I'm sure you've heard about conditional effects orders. They include so-called stop-loss orders and take-profit orders. In this case, what we're going to tell management is, look, for the remaining exposure that you didn't want, perhaps for very good reasons, to hedge 100% right at the start, Let's put in conditional FX forwards. How do we calculate them? Well, in such a way that say that you're going to divide the remaining exposure in three thirds, right? And so you've got to put three stop loss orders in place, right? such that if they are executed, if the market moves not in your favor, right? If so there is, a, say, a worst-case scenario in currency markets. The average of these three stop-loss order exactly matches your budget rate, budget rate that you used in setting prices. So that's one way, you see, um, uh, one way in which currency risk matters, because we're managing risk here, right? Not, Letting the company so have unmanaged unmanaged exposure to currencies, but we're not a necessarily executing hedges. We are uh, so monitoring markets, making sure that you're still actively managing your exposure to currency risk, but maybe not executing hedges all the time. But could be also for interest rate reasons, 
pretty expensive. So, uh, and now I get enthusiastic about this because look at what's going to happen there. You're going to get, as a treasurer, right, to the extent that this top loss order, unexecuted, because markets maybe are not very volatile, perhaps they move in your favor. So, of course, uh, you could put also take profit orders, right, to take advantage of favorable moves. But to the extent that your stop loss orders are not executed, you gain time. And time, as I'm sure you, you've uh, uh, seen that in many talks with treasurers and with people in turn, time is the most precious asset for the treasury team. This is going to give them the possibility to do a lot of things. One thing is, of course, to update, to fine tune, to improve their cash flow forecast. So as they do that, and they do that with the help of information that comes from real world, it's not just forecast. Now they got to be able to see uh, what's going on in the economy, in the business, sales, their purchases, and they're going to fine-tune their forecast. Now, as you fine-tune your forecast to the upside or to the downside, you automatically adjust the level and the size of those conditions so that you make sure that the process improves as time goes by. Note also, again, uh, so display my enthusiasm here, Note that also as time goes by, you might discover or find what is called netting opportunities. I'm sure we'll discuss that a little bit more, but netting opportunities is, hey, why would I execute a hedge if maybe a subsidiary has in a, a, a trade in the opposite direction? And even more to the point, but that involves a, a pretty technical point that is perhaps left uh, best left for uh, a little bit later on. There is the interest rate impact. If interest rates are not in your favor, let's discuss that uh, in a couple of minutes, but here, delaying that hedge execution with the help of conditional orders is going to allow you to lower, to lessen the impact of those unfavorable interest rates. So lots of things are there to do, as, as you can see, depending on the the type of, of strategy or program that you wish to implement. Now, that, that, that's very apparent, Augustine. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, there's so many different strategies you can put in place, um, and you've taken us through lots of them. I'm sure there's way more. Um, does it, you, you mentioned earlier about online travel agencies and how they um, have you know, a certain need because of the environment that they're in. That raises the question of, do industries have different strategies that are very common to them? Largely around, like you mentioned, online travel agencies would be making transactions in seconds uh, in different currencies, where factory, which is making one big bulk order of a certain raw material uh, every month, would have perhaps a different um, strategy in place. So how does it vary by industry? And what are perhaps the extreme cases on each yes. side? Yes, absolutely. Um, so a great point there. Uh, yes, it's the, I, in our view the main point that that calls for different type of strategies or programs is we call it the pricing parameters of the firm. But pricing parameters might be a little bit uh, confusing. So let's call it the pricing characteristics of the firm. Do you face dynamic prices like the OTA, right? Or do you do you Keep your prices steady for one campaign, right? Or do you keep your prices so as steady as possible for as long as possible? That's the, the key element. Another element is the, the difference in interest rates, are, as we're going to explain a little bit later. But to go back to the example of the, of the travel sector, this is a fantastic one. It's perhaps the extreme one, right? In terms of dynamic prices. Now, there's geolocation services, payment apps, uh, algorithms that track demand and supply changes in seconds. That has uh, turned the prices in travel um, 
incredibly dynamic. They change really literally, literally minute by minute. So it's very important, very difficult there, or almost dangerous to, to take a budget hedging approach, such as the one I described a little bit earlier on, right? Because you would have the forecasting risk would be extremely uh, high and you wouldn't, you, you would take perhaps too much, too much risk. What we uh, do here is we advise companies to apply on what we call the micro hedging program for those firm sales or purchase orders. You could, for example, buy hotel capacity in Thailand and sell packages in, in Canada, right? So, table, uh, so currency risk on the buy side, currency risk on sell side is going to involve many times small transactions, right? And it's going to involve perhaps many different currency pairs. So that's almost or that is impossible to, to manage manually. What you want here is to, what we call to aggregate those individual pieces of exposure so that instead of executing a hedge for, say, a couple of thousand pounds or dollars to have a little bit more of an aggregation and then only you would execute the hedge. Note that this requires all the time that you uh, recalculate the, the value of that exposure with the new piece of, of information, new sales order or new purchase order that comes in. And it's, it's absolutely impossible to do it manually. You really need here the help of, of software tools to, to handle all of that. Super clear. And so leaking to those software tools, um, I guess, and also in more generally the currency management world, who are the main actors, actually? You mentioned, obviously, the, the corporates who are in need of FX deals, right, to, for, to cover their commercial transactions. Who else is, is out there? Our corporations are on the, by far the, say, the biggest users of currency management uh, solutions, both for the commercial type of exposure to currency risk, nationals type of exposure, and but you could, could also mention currency dealers that have a, a very useful function in finding all those buyers and sellers that allow you to create a lively market. And in that regard, by the way, Young, there's an interesting development. Well, it's not new now, but it's uh, it has flourished in the past, say, uh, two or three years, and it's called the uh, we call them multi-dealer trading platforms, such as 360T. So what they enable you is to, to automate what we call the trade part, right? The execution of that forwards or spot or swap transactions. The treasuries now have the tool to automate all that uh, part of the process, right? The, the trading phase itself, thanks to those platforms. By the way, those platforms will give you, uh, will we'll have lots of features. One is them. One of them is called best price execution, which is really interesting because it's a uh, it's quite an, an amazing science, right? When you see those currency rates fluctuating second by second, not only second by second, but also with the different banks that might have slightly different rates at which they buy and rates at which they sell. So the software uh, solutions there from those currency dealers or those multi-dealer training platforms automatically make sure if that's your if you're interested in getting the best price, you will get it. Not always. Uh, not everybody uh, wishes necessarily for the, the best price execution. For example, you would if you're doing business with a bank in other parts of the company, so in raising capital in in managing other, other parts of risk, take uh, interest rate risk or commodity price risk or whatever, you might want to channel your FX order to that particular institution, but you have the choice to do that. It's a way to automate all that uh, trade. And of course, banks are the, are the other side, the very uh, big players here, because what a bank has is, well, we know that, right? Contact with any money, a given amount of currency and others who want to 
sell that amount of currencies. Of course, they do that in money market instruments, in whatever, and in uh, in equities and in on a spot basis, on a forward basis, on an options basis. So banks are very important here, of course, as they have all those contacts that enable to create what we call liquidity, right? Meaning that you will have at all moments, 24 hours, seven almost, a, a price to um, to execute your desired transaction. So these are the, the three big players here, the dealers that put the, the banks and the corporates in contact, the uh, the corporates that use the um, currency markets for risk uh, for currency management purposes and the banks. I can't I can't help myself but to, to ask then. I mean, we have a, a whole question on what those contacts do and the, the way you you guys work. But where does it sit in all these contacts? We have three main actors: corporates, FX dealers, and financial institutions. And therefore, my for my curiosity, where those contacts? fit into all this? Right. Look, what CapTox offers is, as I said, a, a set of automated software solutions to handle the uh, that end-to-end -end management. It starts with all the way from pricing and then so channeling that uh, to the trade phase and, and then the post-trade phase. We call that end-to-end -end because, because, and that's Really, really important here. Some people argue for automation as a as what is called discrete automation, meaning you solve one particular issue. But we really emphasize end-to-end -end automation, meaning integrate all the parts. To give you an example, if you are saving a few what's called pips, right, fractions of of those. Of those, the difference between the, the price at which you sell and which you buy. You, you may save them by automating trade phase of the workflow. But what if you're not integrating the pre trade phase? That involves the process of exposure collection that we might discuss, right? But if you don't have a proper integration between those two, what you save on, on trading costs, you may lose on poorly managed uh, currency risk. So, that's what we do. Now, those solutions are based on on a technology that you want to go in, in, into that discussion. Well, it involves mostly APIs, right? Application programming interfaces, a fantastic piece of, of, of technology that enables us to provide those solutions. 